Winston Churchill used to refer to a certain point in time as a hinge of history. And that certainly applies to this 13th chapter of Acts. This is a hinge of history. At this point, the church is swinging full scale into the third phase of the Great Commission. From Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, they are now going out to the uttermost parts of the earth. And at this point, the primary base of operation is shifting from the church at Jerusalem to the church at Antioch. And at this point, the central character in the progress of the gospel is changing from the apostle to the Jews, Peter, to the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul. And at this point, the focus of the church is changing. Prior to this, they had a nationalistic view of what God wanted to do. Now they are gathering a worldview of what God wants to do. In fact, in this chapter, we will see the first emphasis on what we would refer to today as missionary activity. Now, prior to this, missionary activity took place in the church at Jerusalem, but it happened providentially rather than purposefully. If you ask them why they were out in Judea and Samaria and eventually Phoenicia and Syria preaching the gospel, they would say it wasn't because of some massive mission uh, outreach from the church at Jerusalem. It was because of persecution. Their faces were on wanted posters in all the post offices in Jerusalem. And so they went out. But now we have the church prompted by the Holy Spirit making a conscious decision to send Barnabas and Saul on a missionary journey. In the first part of chapter 13, we see them going out. In the last part of chapter 14, we will see them reporting back. And this morning, I want us to look at the initial steps in that process. And I want us to learn something in these verses about missions. And I think one of the things we will discover is that some of today's foreign missions practices are foreign to this passage. Now, I want to highlight just three things this morning. I want to highlight the church in missions, the call to missions, and the choice of missions. First of all, the church in missions. And that's chapter 12, verse 25, through chapter 13, verse 2. The first thing that Luke mentions as he addresses the subject of missions is the church at Antioch, which reminds us that missions begins with a solid church foundation at home. And he points out six characteristics of this church at Antioch that I think we ought to admire. Number one, it was generous. Verse 25, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Now, why did Barnabas and Saul go to Jerusalem? Well, the end of chapter 11 tells us that when the church there heard about the famine that was coming, they took a contribution and they sent it to the needs of those saints in Jerusalem. Barnabas and Saul drove the Brinks truck to deliver the gift. And now they're returning and they bring along with them John Mark, which tells us that this church was not self-absorbed. They recognized the needs of others. They cared about the needs of others. They did something about the needs of others, even other churches that were 300 miles away. Their vision went beyond Antioch. They were generous. Second, they were gifted. 
verse 1. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, and then he names five of them. Strong churches have godly gifted leaders. And the church at Antioch had five such leaders. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, prophets were those who spoke for God. Literally, the word means to speak before. It can mean to speak before in the sense of predicting, or it can mean to speak before in the sense of proclaiming. It means to foretell the truth of God and to foretell the truth of God. And we see prophets doing both of those in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 11 and verse 28, the prophet Agabus told the church at Antioch about a worldwide famine that was coming. He was foretelling the truth. He was predicting what was going to happen. In Acts chapter 15 and verse 32, Judas and Silas, who were prophets, encouraged and strengthened the Christians in Antioch with a lengthy message. They were foretelling the truth of God. They were proclaiming the message. And both of those aspects were essential in the early church where they didn't have the written New Testament. You see, they couldn't say, turn to Acts chapter 13. They didn't have an Acts chapter 13. They had to say, thus says the Lord. And so they were both receiving revelation and relaying revelation. Teachers were those that God had given capacity to to make his truth clear to others. They explained what it meant and they applied it to people's lives. Now, it's not clear here which ones were prophets and which ones were teachers. It's likely that some of these had both of those gifts because in Acts 15.35 we read that Paul and, Sil or Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch teaching and preaching with many others the word of God. They had both gifts. And so this church was gifted. Third thing I want to point out about this church is that it was diverse. It was diverse in number, first of all. It says they had five different prophets and teachers. And apparently they kept them busy in ministry because back in Acts chapter 11 and verse 26, we find that Barnabas went away to bring Saul in because the workload was so big. And so they had five prophets and teachers. And one of the benefits of that is accountability. See, they didn't just have one guy doing all the preaching and teaching and everybody going, whatever you say. They had five prophets and teachers. I'm sure they had different assignments within the church, but one of the benefits was that they kept each other in check. And that's important. That's God's design. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 29, Paul gave these guidelines to the church at Corinth. He said, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. They were diverse in number. But secondly, they were diverse in makeup. Look at these five guys. First of all, it tells us in verse 1, Barnabas. Now, we know from Acts 4.36 that Barnabas was a Levite from Cyprus. The apostles named him Barnabas because he was such an encourager, and throughout the book of Acts, that's what we've seen him do. In chapter 4 and verse 37, he encouraged others by selling a tract of land and giving it to meet their needs. In Acts 9.27, he reached out and encouraged Saul when the believers of Jerusalem didn't believe that his conversion was genuine. In Acts 11.22, he was sent by the church at Jerusalem to encourage the Gentile believers in Antioch. 
In Acts 11.25, he's encouraging Saul again in his ministry by bringing him in and giving him a teaching responsibility. In Acts 11.30, he encouraged the church at Jerusalem by delivering the gift from the church at Antioch. Barnabas was an encourager. Second individual mentioned here is Simeon. Now, we know little about him except what we read here. He was called Niger. That's a Latin word meaning black, which suggests to us that he was probably from Africa. Some have suggested that Simeon or Simon was the same Simon who bore the cross of Jesus. That would be a great story, but I kind of doubt if that's accurate because Matthew 27, 32 tells us that that Simon was from Cyrene. Luke doesn't tell us that this Simon is from Cyrene. In fact, he tells us that the next individual, Lucius, was from Cyrene. And in Mark chapter 15 and verse 21, Mark identifies Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross of Jesus this way. He says, you know, he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, he would not have to identify him by his sons if Simon himself had come on to be a prophet and a teacher and a leader in the church at Antioch. Next individual here is Lucius. He was from Cyrene, which was in northern Africa, west of Egypt. It was modern-day Libya. And he was probably one of the founders of this church because Acts chapter 11 and verse 20 tells us that the ones who founded this church were from Cyprus and Cyrene. Next individual is Manian. We're told here that he was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Uh, that Greek word brought up can be translated foster brother, so he may in fact have been a half-brother of Herod, which means that he was raised in the home of a king. He was raised alongside Herod, Herod Antipas by Herod the Great, the one who put all the babies in in Bethlehem and around Bethlehem to death at the time of the birth of Christ. That was his stepdad. That would put his age at about 69 years old, which is rather interesting because these two boys grew up in the same home, but they couldn't have been further apart in relationship to Jesus because Herod Antipas is the one, you remember, who had John the Baptist beheaded, and he's the one who mocked and mistreated Jesus during his trial. In contrast to that, Manian became a follower of Jesus and a leader in the Gentile church that helped launch the gospel throughout the world. And then the final individual mentioned in verse 1 is Saul, the persecutor turned preacher. Why does Luke name all of these individuals? I think one of the reasons is he wants to point out to us that they were diverse in their makeup. Saul was a Pharisee, Barnabas was a Levite, Manian was an aristocratic nobleman, a rich individual, Simeon and Lucius were two black Africans. And so in this group, you've got class differences, you've got cultural differences, you've got racial differences. But they were all working hand in hand in the body of Christ. And it's interesting to me that with this first church, the church that God was going to use to launch out the great missionary work, he points out to us that this was a church that was very diverse. Jew-Gentile, black-white, rich-poor. And I think one of the reasons God does that 
for us is that he wants to encourage us that that's the way he wants the local church to look. He wants us to be diverse in our makeup because he's called us all as one in Christ. Fourth thing we see about this church at Antioch was that it was ministering. Look at verse 2. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting. Now what kind of ministry were they doing? Well, the implication, I think, is clear from the passage. They were using their gifts of prophecy and teaching, and they were fasting. What usually went along with fasting? Prayer. So they were prophesying, they were teaching the Word, and they were praying. That's to be the priority of those who are gifted to preach and teach. A lot of church leaders today get busy with activities and programs and neglect the real ministry. The leaders at Antioch patterned themselves after the apostles in Acts chapter 6 who put aside other responsibilities and said, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This was a ministering church. Fifthly, they were motivated. Notice who they were ministering to in verse 2. They were ministering to the Lord. It's crucial for us to understand who the recipient of our ministry is is we are ministering to the Lord when we lose sight of that and we're only ministering to people it's easy to be tempted to compromise it, it's certain that you're going to be discouraged and it's a guarantee that you will probably burn out I like what Paul said in Acts 20, 19, when he described his ministry, he said, I am serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. You see, I can handle the tears and the trials when I know who I'm serving. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2:15, and he said, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. You see, he is the one we serve. He is the one we will stand before. He is the one I want the approval of. In Colossians 3.23, Paul said, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. These leaders at the church of Antioch were motivated by the fact that they were serving the Lord. And then let me give you a, a sixth characteristic of this church. They were passionate. Verse 2 says they were fasting. Now, they weren't fasting because they were overweight. They were fasting because they were concerned. And throughout Scripture, whenever you see someone fasting, they were fasting because they had a burden. They were giving up a physical need, eating because they wanted to concentrate on a spiritual need. Now, what was the spiritual need here? Well, we're not told. But I think from the context, we can probably conclude that the spiritual need they were focusing on was they were burdened about the lost. And they were seeking God on how to fulfill his command to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. You see, that wasn't something they were indifferent about. They were passionate. And so there's the church in missions. It was generous, gifted, diverse, ministering, motivated, and passionate. Which brings us to the second point, and that is the call to missions in verses 2 and 3. Verse 2 says, And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. 
Now, we're not told how the Holy Spirit spoke to them. He might have spoken to them in an audible voice. However, since he just named five prophets and teachers, my assumption would be that he spoke to them through one of them. At any rate, he made the call clear. And what I'd like to do here is just point out to you seven lessons about the call of Barnabas and Saul. Number one, God chose those for further ministry who were already ministering. Did you notice that in verse 2? And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Do you think that God may be calling you to the mission field? Do you think that God may be calling you to further ministry? That call is probably not going to happen if you put yourself in a cave somewhere and wait for God's call. See, God called these people to further ministry when they were already ministering. So I think the message is clear. Don't sit around and wait. Get busy and work. God is not likely to take idle Christians off the shelf, dust them off, and entrust them with huge responsibility in ministry. Saul and Barnabas were doing the work. They were busy ministering for the Lord when the call came for further ministry. Second lesson. People didn't choose who went. God did. You see, the church didn't choose Saul and Barnabas. In fact, if it had been left up to them, I'm sure these would have been the last two individuals they would have chosen because these were their prominent leaders. These were the best that they had. And what's also interesting here is that Saul and Barnabas didn't volunteer. God didn't say, I need two missionaries. Put a sign-up list on the bulletin board. They didn't volunteer for this. God sovereignly chose the missionaries that he wanted to go. Third lesson. God called them through the local church. Now, current missionary practice tends to leave the leading of the Spirit to the individual who goes rather than to the church that sends. Today, missionaries go to the mission field when they feel led of God. And missionary agencies often make the final choice on who goes and who doesn't go. That's not the pattern I see here. God called them through the church. Now, I'm not downplaying the personal call because Saul had a personal call. When Saul was first saved, back in Acts chapter 9 and verse 15, God said, He is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles. And on his first visit to Jerusalem, he went into the temple and God spoke to him there and God said, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Saul had a call. But what I want you to see is that he waited until the church confirmed it. The fact that I am convinced that God has called me is not enough. I need to wait for the confirmation that God is calling the church to send me out. In fact, you know what's interesting? Twelve years elapsed from the time Saul was called as an individual to the time that he was sent out by the church at Antioch. And so he got the personal call, but he waited for God to give that call to the church to send him out. God calls through the church. Fourth lesson. God sends out the most mature. 
Most missionaries that go out today are young, inexperienced people. It's rare to see mature, proven, experienced people sent out. Who did God send out? He sent out not two young, inexperienced people. He sent out the two key leaders in the church at Antioch, which I think tells us that missions requires all the maturity and proven giftedness the church can give. You say, well, what about the young and inexperienced? Well, look at the end of verse 5. It says they took along John as their helper. There's a young, inexperienced guy. He wasn't the main missionary. They took him along as a helper. Fifth lesson. God sent them out in a team. Current missionary practice is just starting to catch on to this important principle. And I think it's great. Because there's more of an emphasis today than ever before on going out in a team. And if you look at the New Testament, that's the pattern throughout. Jesus sent out his disciples in teams. Jesus sent out the 70 in teams. God sends out Saul and Barnabas together as a team. Sixth lesson. And I'll probably get in trouble on this one. God sent out only two. Current missionary practice seems to emphasize the need to send out many missionaries. But this church only sent out two. They had an entire unreached world out there, and they sent two. The call to missions today usually is based on the argument of mathematics. There are millions out there that need to hear, so the more we send, the more we can reach. That sounds logical. But God doesn't seem to follow that logic. God sent two people from the church at Antioch, and look what they accomplished. Dale Hamilton heads up all the missionaries in Tanzania with Africa Inland Missions. And when I was over there last October, I asked him this question. I said, Dale, there, I, I'm overwhelmed with all the needs around here. I said to him, what's the answer? Do you need more missionaries? And his immediate response to me was, no, we don't need more missionaries. We need better missionaries. See, I'm not so sure that the problem in missions is that we're sending out too few. I think the problem in missions is that oftentimes we're sending out people that God never called. And we're not sending out people that God has called. God only sent two out of the church at Antioch. God is interested in quality, not just quantity. Seventh lesson. The church supported their missionaries. Verse 3. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Now, the they in verse 3, I think, includes the entire church because at the end of chapter 14, we're, we're told that the church is the one that commended them to the grace of God. And so here we find them fasting and praying. Now, this is unusual because usually you're fasting because you want an answer from the Lord. They just got an answer. Send out Saul and Barnabas. So why are they praying now? Why are they fasting now? I think the answer is they're praying that God will make this ministry effective for Saul and Barnabas. 
And did God answer that prayer? Look at the end of chapter 14 at verse 26. And from there it says, they sailed to Antioch. That is, they came back home from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had, what? Accomplished. Fulfilled. They had fulfilled the work. And so I think it's key that here the church, before they send them out, they pray and they fast for their effectiveness. And God answered that prayer. And then it also tells us that they laid their hands on them. Now why did they do that? Well, for the same reason that the apostles laid their hands on the seven deacons in Acts chapter 6. It was a sense of identification. They were identifying with them. See, they didn't just send them out and wave. They laid their hands on them. They were saying, we are identified with you. We are going with you by praying for you and by supporting you. And I think that's why at the end of chapter 14 when they came back, we find them coming right back to Antioch and reporting what happened because these were the people who were linked to them in the ministry. Third point, the choice of missions. And that's in verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Now, how did Barnabas and Saul know where they were supposed to go? Look back at verse 2. The Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. God didn't tell the church where they were going. God told the church to send them out. How did Saul and Barnabas know where to go? Well, obviously, God directed them on where to go. You see, the church was directed to send them out. They personally were directed by God on where to go. So I think when the church came and said, we're sending you out, Paul and Barnabas already had a map in their pocket that was all marked up because God had laid that burden on them as to where to go. And so it says they went to Seleucia, which was the port of Antioch on the Mediterranean, about 16 miles away, and they sailed to Cyprus, the third largest island in the Mediterranean. It was about 60 miles from shore, and on a clear day they could see it as they stood there. It was an island of about 100 miles in length and 60 miles in width. It had two major cities. Salamis on the east end was the chief commercial port, and Paphos on the west end was the political capital. And of course, this was familiar territory to Barnabas because he was born in Cyprus. And so I'm sure as he makes this boat trip of 60 miles, his heart's beating faster and faster because this is something he's dreamed about ever since he got saved, to go back home and share the gospel with the people there. Verse 5, And when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Now how did they know to go to the synagogues? Well, that's a choice that they made. They were Jews. That was their background. They had this opportunity. The synagogue was open. This, they as preachers could go into the synagogue and preach and have an audience. It was an ideal situation. In fact, as we follow Paul's missionary journeys, this was always his pattern. He went to a city. He went to the synagogue and preached there until they kicked him out. And then he went to the Gentiles. And then it says at the end of verse 5, and they also had John as their helper. Now, John, who was also called Mark, had come with Barnabas and Saul from Jerusalem. 
Back in chapter 12 and verse 12, we're told that his mother was the Mary at whose house the prayer meeting was held that Peter interrupted when he got out of prison. And Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10 tells us he was Barnabas's cousin. So he's related to Barnabas. I, I think his, his mother Mary probably thought, you know, we got Christians being arrested in Jerusalem. We got James getting his head cut off. I don't want my little boy in Jerusalem. So she came over and leaned on her nephew, Barnabas, and said, take him out of here and take him with you to Antioch. So up they go to Antioch, and when they get to Antioch, next thing you know, Barnabas is being called off on a missionary journey, and so they take John Mark along with them. Now, how did they know to take him? That was a choice that they made. You see, as we look at these two verses, verses 4 and 5, they chose where to go, they chose how to approach the ministry, and they chose to take John Mark. Were their choices right? Well, they were right about where to go and how to do it because when we get to chapter 14 and verse 26, it says they fulfilled the work. They accomplished what God had called them to do. Was taking John Mark the right choice? That's questionable, as we'll see next week. What's the message to us here? Missions begins with a solid, gifted, active church. God calls people to missions through the church, and then he leads individuals in the choices of where and how and who to take. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for this passage that gives us an example of a church reaching out to the world. And Father, as we think about this today, we pray that you would give us that kind of burden, that we would definitely be busy ministering to those around us, reaching out to the lost world in our community. But Lord, also give us a vision that looks beyond Cape Girardeau and beyond southeast Missouri and beyond our local area to the world around us. And Father, we want to be sensitive to those that you are calling out and those that you are preparing that as you guide us, that we'll be sensitive to know who you are sending. And Father, as a result, that many might come to know you and you might be glorified. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.